Howdy. Phil, Starship Enterprise, are you ready to be on board? Yes, sir. <laughs> Welcome to another PFM podcast. Today we have with us author Philip Cook, who's an author on domestic violence. He has two books that he's written. The first one is Abused Men, The Hidden Side to Domestic Violence, as well as his second book, When Women Sexually Abuse Men, The Hidden Side of Rape, Stalking, Harassment, and Sexual Assault. Good day to you, Philip. How are you, my dear friend? Yeah, just fine. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. No, glad to have you. It's an honor. I, I love your work, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a devout follower, and we appreciate you taking the time to be with us today. Questions sure. for you. I, I guess you know, my thought is, is, how did you get in to this topic of you know, domestic violence against men, wherein they're the victims? Well, uh, I'm a former daily radio and television reporter. Um, your typical uh, anchor news guy. The, in other words, the the guy you wake up to on the radio in the morning, or uh, in case of television, uh, watch the news at at night. Uh, small markets and large markets. And uh, frankly, you scratch one of us, and not very deeply. Uh, we all want to write a book. <laughs> the, the question then becomes, if you're not a huge national correspondent or something, even sometimes then it can be difficult, uh, is to find a subject that hasn't been covered before and never been dealt with, really. And when I came across some research suggesting that, uh, or proving, really, that uh, uh, that domestic abuse of men is extensive, much more extensive than I thought or heard about, I said, hmm, that's really interesting. So uh, with the help of uh, Richard Strauss, uh, Murray Strauss, that is, from the National Family Violence Research Center in New Hampshire, uh, and others, they helped me, uh, you know, get through the data and understand it more correctly. And, uh, and then uh, I was accepted by a publisher, Prager Publishing, which is a, a, a small but uh, uh, certainly professional and uh, uh, publisher, uh, academic-type publisher. And so then uh, Abuse Men, Hidden Side Domestic Violence, came out in '97, And then I updated it with a second edition in 2009. And then uh, my one and only agent, I had a paragraph in Abused Men saying, well, uh, what about rape? And he said, nah, take that out. That's another book. So <laughs> following his advice, uh, then I came out with When Women Sexually Abuse Men and uh, made that a, a third volume. Excellent, excellent. The, on, a, on a personal note, the first time that I encountered males as victims of domestic violence was back when I was a prosecutor. And the one thing that, that I noted was how lackadaisical or humorous the police officer took it. I mean, all of them. And, and back in, in the, uh, at the, at the station, back in the offices, they were, they were actually joking about it. He really got his butt whooped by her. I mean, and I was, I, I, I'm hesitant to use the word shocked, but I was shocked. I mean, very surprised. And so on that note, when, you know, domestic violence against men, is that an, an issue that society denies or makes fun of, or how is that handled, generally speaking? Well, I think, uh, <clears throat> one, we have to realize something uh, another researcher said. Men themselves will laugh about it, but it's self-protective humor. Understood. Uh, yeah, that's, you know, that reaction. 
As far as the societal reaction uh, is concerned, uh, certainly uh, when the book first came out in 97, uh, the reaction was laughter, uh, ridiculing, oh, that doesn't happen, that's ridiculous, uh, a strong man can't be over, you know, hurt by a woman, uh, so on. Uh, it just, you know, laughter and ridicule was was certainly the operating reaction, let's say. But then as time went on, and I think this is why I want to do a second edition, I wanted to find out if that attitude had changed uh, substantially or not, and I find that it has. Uh, I think there's more men reporting. I think law enforcement has taken it more seriously. Uh, I think that there are, well, there was only one shelter in the United States uh, for men uh, in 97, and now, and this is a estimate because a survey has not been done, there are at least six and uh, including uh, a couple in Canada and one in uh, Ireland. So <clears throat> that's a growth. And then there's uh, other indications, too. Uh, for example, in the small, very small community where I live, there isn't a shelter because they just can't afford one for men or women, uh, but there is a crisis line in the health center. All their literature is gender-inclusive. And uh, the silent witness signs that you see... Uh, have included male victims uh, as well as female for many years. So, uh, and that wasn't the case in the past. Uh, male victims were uh, even once murdered, which the silent witness exhibits show, uh, was simply left out. In terms of uh, but now in, they're included. In terms of personal observation, I've noted that there's an increase in males going to. Uh, obtain restraining orders against females for domestic violence. And that increase is something that I've noticed over the past uh, 10 years. And it's, I don't know that it's um, an increase in, in violence, per se, as it is men are more apt or more inclined to go out and, and get those protective orders. Question for you, we, we talked about you know, the, the societal uh, perspective or uh, people's uh, perspective uh, on domestic violence regarding men. What about boys? Well, uh, I was actually uh, looking at uh, the some survey results here of the uh, youth survey, of which there are several uh, out there, and uh, we find that uh, dating violence, let's say, uh, is uh, fairly common. Uh, for women and for boys. Uh, can't find the exact figures right now, but uh, it's increasing. And one of the things I looked at when women sexually abuse men is the whole subject of coercion and the dating relationships. Uh, the uh, Centers for Disease Control found that uh, in terms of how they define coercion, that's pretty broadly defined, and maybe unfairly broadly defined, uh, slightly more men reported over a lifetime uh, sexual coercion uh, incidents than women. Slightly more, but it was there. So uh, I think we have to realize fundamentally that both women and men uh, do engage in, in a partner violence at fairly equal rates, 
Uh, women are injured more frequently than men, about twice as often, uh, when all types are uh, considered. When it comes to the most serious forms where weapons are used, uh, burning, scalding, so on, uh, then the rates of actual injury are somewhat similar. Uh, so there's a range of actions uh, by both men and women in both sexually aggressiveness and certainly in physical violence and within intimate relationships. Uh, neither sex is um, pure, <laughs> let's say, uh, uh, human beings are human beings, and they can do terrible things to each other. And we've seen an increase in uh, female crime overall in the last 10 years. Those uh, numbers have gone up substantially. Indeed, for the first time in history since the uh, crime statistics began to be taken, women now exceed men in one category of crime, that is of embezzlement. And that has never happened before. Never. Uh, And there are some predictors and they've been right on her timeline so far in the Journal of Criminal Psychology, that uh, the crime uh, rate of women committing crimes will equal that of men in all categories uh, except for stranger-to-stranger homicide. Well, question for us, sort of a tangent off that thought. With respect to the, you know, the criminal court system, is there a gender disparity in sentencing? Oh, well, yes, and that, that uh, is another area I looked at more extensively uh, and when women uh, sexually abuse men book than in abuse men book, because that was just more related to, uh, uh, you know, domestic violence crimes. But uh, we know, for example, and this has not changed, uh, that there is a sentencing disparity difference. Women... The chivalrous uh, instincts, perhaps, play a role. Other things play a role. Uh, and we know that women uh, receive less sentencing sentences uh, for all types of crime than do men across the board. That disparity increases rather than decreases the more serious the crime. So that, on average, women are the most serious types of crime receive three years uh, less prison time or sentencing time. Uh, there's also good research that indicates that women are uh, less, more likely, let's say, uh, to be charged with lesser penalties uh, than men. Understood. Understood. I, I was. I, I briefly looked at prior to our, our discussion that there is a. Um, a study out there from the University of Michigan by Professor Starr, and she did a brilliant job on, on this topic. And then, personally, I've noted, you know, over the years from uh, practicing as an attorney, that you know, with respect to you know the sanctions imposed or you know the the duration um, was you know over time, noticed that it was significantly uh, more severe for males uh, than it was for females. We're talking same crime, same uh, criminal history, same degree of severity, yet you had a dramatically different outcome when it came to sanctions. And so... Uh, yeah, so uh, probation is easier uh, to get and and, and so on. Uh, these are averages. There's going to be, you know, uh, exceptions to all that, of course. 
but on average, women receive less time than men for all types of crime. The more severe it is, uh, the greater the disparity. And there's considerable evidence, though it's hard to attract, of course, that being charged with a crime, uh, a greater likelihood of being you know, charged with a lesser crime um, than a man in a similar situation. So it's certainly there, and it's real, and uh, there's ample proof to show that it is. Question for you. Is there a, uh, I, 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 it's hard to put this into words, but is there a mentality out there that, you know, if a man is being uh, abused, you know, domestic violence, is there a mentality out there that somehow, some way, he must have done something to deserve it? Well, yes, that's still, that's still the, um, uh, an operating thesis, if you will, for some. Uh, I was on a radio show a couple of years ago. Now, these are shock jocks. So I <laughs> understand that, uh, uh, you know, their, their whole shtick is to uh, shock people and yell and scream at you. Not really a, a polite interview there, let's say, <laughs> you know. Uh, but uh, I was mentioning a famous case. Uh, Tanya Katine was her name, an actress of some sort, and a baseball player, a uh, professional baseball player. Uh, and apparently she's, you know, real beautiful or something. I don't know. Uh, anyway, so uh, they're driving in the car. She takes off his high, her high heel shoes and began striking him repeatedly, causing some severe injuries. He loses control of the car and crashes into a wall, uh, and injuries uh, resulted to him. Uh, so that was clearly a case of, uh, you know, a partner violence. And the shock jack's gone there. Well, I won't care. Gosh, she's so hot. I don't care. She could beat me up. You know, that's what they said. So uh, there is that, yes. And, and how does this affect, you know, boys and, and, and uh, young males, teenagers? I mean, is the same mentality there where you must have you know, done something to deserve this? Certainly. Uh, there's uh, uh, an abused man. I noted the, what, what's called an observational study, uh, playground activity, Right. Um, and so this researcher sat there for a year and, um, you know, she had a job as a playground monitor so she could, you know, uh, do this on a consistent basis when I wasn't job, but, uh, on paid position. And so she noted, um, you know, who was doing what to whom, boys versus boys, girls versus boys, et cetera. And what were the consequences of those actions? Uh, she found that girls were more physically aggressive than the boys. And that was pushing, shoving, hitting. The consequences for that behavior uh, was less severe for the girls than it was for the boys uh, across all across the uh, range of incidents. So, uh, do boys think that girls can get away with it and they can't? Yes. What type of, uh, I guess, you know, domestic violence or situational violence, I'll use that, do you note or have you discovered or, or encountered with respect to, you know, boys in the school system? You know, sexual harassment, the differences versus the similarities? Um, we find it in the, in the CDC study. Now, you know, they did not go into boys, okay, they're looking at adults. Uh, sexually coercive tactics are fairly equally distributed. Uh, uh, unwanted 
touching advances and so on uh, were greater for girls than boys generally in the youth surveys. Um, but nevertheless, there were substantial numbers of boys who experienced the same things that the girls did in terms of uh, violence and certainly in terms of uh, sexual coercion and so on. So uh, it's out there. It's real. Um, what the, you know, I'm not a person who wants to go, well, do a whataboutism. Well, wait a minute, there are more women than girls affected, yes. Uh, but we shouldn't ignore the fact that the substantial number of boys and men are also affected by these issues. To what extent do you know, society's stereotypes of masculinity affect the, the victim's willingness to seek help? Well, I, I, I think that's changing a bit. Not substantially yet, but it is changing a, a bit. Uh, certainly in terms of rape, for example, uh, when men are raped. I talked with the prosecuting attorney, one of the rare cases, uh, in fact, the only one we could find, he or me, uh, of a woman actually being charged with rape rather than sexual assault. Um, both these women got 20 years, actually. Uh, he was very concerned. <laughs> when he did the jury uh, uh, the questioning, uh, the women, five of the women on the jury said, nah, that's impossible. You know? <laughs> so he was worried going in, I'll tell you. But he won the case anyway. Uh, so uh, I think for men, it is uh, you know much more difficult, of course, to report these uh, uh, types of things. However, uh, I think there is, as you noted, uh, getting restraining orders, for example, uh, more men seem willing to do so. I think more men are willing to uh, report these kinds of things to authorities. They don't trust the police much. They really don't. Uh, they think that if they make a report, say, of a domestic violence incident, uh, that they're more likely to be arrested than she is, uh, whether or not you know there's any visible injuries uh, you know, to him uh, versus her. One thing, so, one thing I've noticed, I mean, is in the discussion of female rape of, of males, that you get into mm -hmm. this, this mechanical issue, like, well, gee, he, he had an erection, he must have been aroused and wanted it. I mean, how do you deal yeah, with that? Yeah, well, here's my, answer. here's my answer to that one. If I could step through the phone right now and tell you in advance that I'm going to step on your toe really hard, and I can go ahead and do so, could you prevent yourself from saying, ouch? No. Don't think so. Don't think so. Same with an erection. A, uh, if there's stimulation, it can happen. Uh, let's put it this way. And this is you know, difficult to deal with, but women who have been raped do have orgasms sometimes. Men who've been raped, even in fear, can ejaculate. This does not mean that they find this to be a pleasurable experience. It is simply a physical reaction that cannot be avoided. So that's that. But we limit our discussion of male rape by adult women. Not, it's an issue of uh, female teachers against young boys. It's an area I did not look into. I want to look. Because there have been some good books in your organizations that help those victims already. Uh, I want to look at you know the more 
unthought of phenomenon of adult to adult. Uh, we have to realize, as in the case of the rape case in Spokane, uh, erections did not enter into it at all. It was objects for anal penetration. And that uh, is more likely much more common than stimulating an erection and, and then also committing rape. Folks, we're going to take a moment for this brief PSA, and we'll be right back. Have you heard of VAWA, the Violence Against Women Act? VAWA spends billions of taxpayer dollars, that's billions with a B, rather than protect us from domestic violence. VAWA often destroys families, denies children their parents, grandparents, uncles, and aunts. VAWA contributes to family violence, teen violence, and child abuse. VAWA makes children parentless. Has a loved one been falsely accused of domestic violence, stalking, simply raising their voice or child abuse? Because of that false accusation, were they put in jail, restrained from seeing their children, fired from their job, forced into bankruptcy, have their property taken, or commit suicide? Tell your legislators how the Violence Against Women Act hurt you, your loved ones, friends, and associates. Tell them to fix VAWA now. Tell them to fix the Violence Against Women Act. Brought to you by the National Coalition for Men, www.ncfm.org. We fight to protect all of our civil liberties, regardless of gender. Welcome back to the Protection for Men podcast. And then with respect to the types of domestic violence that men suffer from, I mean, there's, you know, there's more than just physical violence. Is, is verbal or physical uh, violence an issue? I mean, uh, verbal versus physical or psychological violence. I mean, what, what, are you, what are you focusing on or what do you see the most of? Well, I think in every case, I mean, all the men I interviewed for abused men uh, expressed this unanimously. Two things they expressed unanimously. Number one, the emotional damage was greater and long-lasting harm uh, to them than uh, the actual physical. Now, obviously, you're dead. That's pretty bad, you know. Understood, but, understood, uh, understood. Yeah, yeah but, but universally, that was their reaction. Uh, secondly, they all talked, and I didn't prompt this at all, they all talked about the mask. That's a word that, you know, different men would come up and they would talk about the mask. And what they meant by that was that to friends, outsiders, people visiting, and so on, she would be the type of person who was the sweetest, nicest, oh, lovey dovey, uh, you know, uh, in, a, in a way appearing sort of excessively subservient to the man in public. But when they got home, the mask came off, and the violence was there. And then, as in typical domestic violence, you know, there's a honeymoon period, and, oh, honey, it'll never happen again, and blah, blah. Uh, and the men and women who experience this kind of relationship, you ask them, and this is a common question, it's not an unfair question to ask, not blaming the victim to ask this question, why didn't you leave? Universally, women and men reply the same way, but I still love them. Well, sometimes the price of love is too high. What, what, what red, takes, what, I'm sorry, what red flags do you see out there that 
should alert males to the potential uh, of, of, a, of a female abuser. I mean, how do you educate guys? Say, hey, look, watch for this, watch for that. What red flags are there out there? Well, controlling behavior, of course. Uh, that's number one. Um, sometimes we have to differentiate, let's say, one size does not fit all. In other words, there's the intimate partner terrorist, right, who really is an intimate partner terrorist. Uh, they tend to be sociopaths, uh, alienating personalities, and so on, and there is no cure. The only cure is jail. True. And then the good news is there aren't that many sociopaths out there. <laughs> you know, that's good. Okay? And then you go completely the other way, and it's a one-time argument in which something gets thrown, for example, uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and that's not necessarily the kind of power and control type of situation. But for to answer your question, it really is, number one, look for controlling behavior. Uh, and for men, look for... Um, the mask, if you will, of being outly, outwardly and even more, mm, let's say, publicly subservient, uh, you know, to the man in public situations. Uh, but when they're alone, that behavior uh, changes. Uh, and so there's constant criticism, oh, you're stupid, you're dumb, uh, those kinds of demeaning words, you know, how stupid are you, all that. Uh, that's the beginning of a slippery slope uh, down to uh, perhaps physical altercations. Recognize that women make up for the size and weight differential by using weapons twice as often, by throwing things twice as often. Uh, now, there are some things, and, and I've asked the CDC, and they did reply in the in women sexually abused women uh, thing, but not reply specifically, is that, for example, it's not measured uh, and in any way, in any nationally representative survey, is women who, either through coercion or pay, uh, get another man to attack uh, the man they want to get rid of. That's not measured. It certainly is domestic violence, uh, but it's not measured, and, and it's not there. For the first time ever, the CDC ask questions about being burned. That's good. Obviously, it's a thing. Uh, but they didn't ask about scalding. And I think if you ask people, well, being burned is sort of, what's that, with a hot object? Uh, but being scalded, is that the same thing as being burned? I think you've got to have both questions. They only asked half the question. Uh, so there's a, there are gaps in our research uh, and also, of course, the CDC only had female interviewers uh, doing the survey. Interesting. Now, now we know, uh, particularly remember in this survey for the first time, it wasn't just in you know, partner violence, but also sexual coercion, rape, and so on, uh, that uh, we know from a British medical study and others that men when it comes to asking about sexual violence uh, against them by women, are more likely to reveal to men interviewers than a female interviewer. That makes logical sense. Right? Understood, understood. So, so the CDC having only female interviewers 
uh, do the survey uh, cast some doubts as to the uh, validity of that particular research in certain areas, uh, in my view. Uh, they dispute that, and they say, you know, and we know from research that uh, people respond more openly to female interviewers and so on, but that's research based on soaps. You know, what what kind of soap do you prefer? <laughs> you know, kind of marketing research stuff. And it doesn't really or shouldn't apply to questions of a intimate sexual nature um, and have it only be females asking the question. What type of, I mean, statistically speaking, what types of domestic violence in, in, in terms of uh, the type and the frequency do you see against boys uh, as they're being raised in, in the family home? Well, we know, for example, that uh, most male rapists, about 60% or so, uh, have been sexually molested uh, by a woman. That could be caregiver, uh, whatever, or mother. Uh, And so this type of thing, of course, perpetuates itself. It's a cycle. Uh, There's another interesting statistic, I think, uh, uh, that 90%, and we've known this for a long time, since the early 70s, 90% of all couples involved in uh, intimate partner violence whether, uh, you know, mild mild or serious, 90% comes from homes in which they either witnessed or experienced such violence. It's a learned thing. And it's very difficult growing up in that kind of environment to then uh, add on to it in adult relationships. In other words, continue the pattern. Uh, So... we know that boys are disciplined harshly in school. They're more likely to be expelled than girls and for the similar type of behavior. Uh, we know that uh, a considerable number of boys uh, are, uh, you know, there are more, let's put it this way, there are more child homicides by mothers than fathers uh, killing their children. Now, there's explanations for that in the sense of mothers more likely to be primary caregivers and so on. Nonetheless, it is true. So, we need to be absolutist about violence, regardless of gender. And in order to stop that cycle of violence from continuing, uh, we need to look at what's going on in the home in terms of child abuse as well. It needs to be a comprehensive approach, heading just one part of it, it doesn't really make a difference, or will not make a difference, uh, you know, in, in, in large sense. Now, here's the good news. The numbers of, it used to be the same, basically. If you looked at uh, intimate partner homicides, for example, say about 15 years ago, there are, of course, yearly variations. Um, age of population is the biggest determining factor. Those homicides were the same, uh, except for uh, reasons we're not quite sure of, uh, slightly higher in the African-American community of women murdering their husbands. Uh, That changed in the last 10 years or so, or 15. In other words, now fewer uh, women are murdering their husbands, where before it was equal. 
what changed and why? Well, I think that the answer is simple, or you know, relatively simple. Women, because of the creation of support, services, help with restraining orders, and so on, uh, they have an escape valve, right? Support system. Uh, a societal support system for their plight, uh, a service system of shelters, crisis lines, and so on. And that has reduced the number of women murdering their husbands and by a significant factor. Now, shouldn't we have the same type of support for men? And if we did, then I would predict that the number of men murdering their wives would also decrease. Understood. One thing, a stat that I've seen uh, over the years is that we, going back to the, you know, the issue of uh, domestic violence in the home against children, the stat that I've seen is that approximately 80 to 82 percent of the perpetrators of domestic violence against children are female. Is that accurate, or what are your thoughts yeah, no, on that? that? No, that, that's correct. No, that's correct. That's correct. The one, you know, the, the caveat to that, of course, is what? Women are more likely to be the primary caregivers. Now, we know that child abuse, uh, you know, often results uh, or stems from or begins with frustration, right, and poor parenting skills and, of course, their own family background. Uh, So the opportunity, let's say, is greater for women than it is for men. Uh, It's certainly the number of single fathers is increasing slightly every single year you know, stay-at-home dads, let's say, and single fathers. Um, Now, will that statistic change because of those changes? We don't know yet. Uh, I suspect that as more men become primary caregivers or stay-at-home caregivers full-time, let's say, uh, we'll see those percentages uh, begin to slightly change. I don't think it's a gender issue, in other words. Understood. I think it's not a gender issue. This is a human issue, a human rights issue, if you will, uh, and certainly an issue of uh, protecting the most vulnerable among us. And then, you know, uh, shooting towards the, the gender dichotomy, if I, if I can use that phrase, there was a study mm-hmm. that was done by Harvard uh, a while back, about oh, 10 years ago. Then I, I saw the number that, and I don't know that it's accurate, I want you to comment on this, if you would, please, that the initiation of domestic violence events, the creation, the initiation of them, um, 70% approximately of, of DV events, intimate partner violence events, are, are initiated by women. Is that accurate? Uh, I wouldn't go uh, as high as 70%, okay? The majority, and it's a slight majority, uh, of initiation acts, and this is important to note, and this was true in the National Family Violence Survey and in the CDC survey, uh, so it's been replicated many times, let's say. Uh, women, by their own self-admission, admit to attacking first slightly more frequently than the reverse. You're looking at a percentage rate of about, say, uh, 55% versus 50-50. So there's a slight but significant uh, you know, number of initiated attacks by women that are greater in initiation uh, than um, the reverse. However, there's a however, of course, always is in this stuff. <laughs> uh, those initial acts may be fairly minor. 
In other words, did you start the physical attack with a slap? That would be initiation, wouldn't it? Uh, push, grab, or shove? That's initiation of a physical act? Yes. So, the initiation rates, in other words, could be uh, more heavily weighted, if you will, towards minor physical acts rather than more severe ones. So, did you shoot him, stab him, you know, whatever. So, there's some caveats there. But, yes... Uh, and that sort of stands to reason, doesn't it? In other words, do women have more license to slap the cat than men do? Well, we've all seen, I think, there's lots of YouTube videos out there. Uh, what was that, uh, What Would You Do show, I think, did it also. In other words, they staged uh, a fight that included some pushing and grabbing and shoving and yelling in-your-face stuff with uh, a man and a woman on a park bench, and then they staged the same couple in the same actions in reverse, a woman doing it to a man. Well, the crowd reaction, if you will, was instantly get involved in scenario one, man against woman, pass by, don't do nothing, don't intervene, say nothing, walk on by, and even on that uh, What Would You Do show, they even had a police officer uh, who walked on by. Now, if it had been the reverse, he admitted, oh, yeah, I would have gotten in. Well, do you think so we that... have a general society acceptance of violence by women against men that is greater than the reverse. The problem, of course, is this. When Goldberg asked Vice President Biden, uh, sir... Uh, and we're speaking about, you know, violence against women, domestic violence, and so on. And she urged him. She said, sir, please, will you tell, also tell women to stop hitting men because it greatly increases their chances of being hit in return? He refused to make a statement. Do you think the media promotes domestic violence against men? I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've seen a a male make a comment to a female, and instead of... You're commenting back, she slaps him across the face. And you don't see the reverse. And I, I, I see it at least once every two weeks on television. Slap, slap. And So what is your reaction there? You mean sitcoms, commercials, so yes, on? Yes, the mass media. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, a good example was a Super Bowl commercial, uh, 2011, I believe. Pepsi, big corporation, Super Bowl commercial. Now, that's plague. And it showed a woman violently shoving a man's, her partner, or her husband, were in the same apartment, basically, so something, uh, shoving his face into a plate of food, rather violently. And then she throws a can at him. And it misses him and hits another woman, and they run away. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> well, can you imagine the reaction? Uh, the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence, now, whatever, uh, had that situation been reversed, showing a man violently shoving a woman's face into a plate of food and throwing a can at him. Well, there was silence. Now, the National Coalition for Men did, you know, protest to that ad, write letters to Pepsi, so on. But, uh, you know, the, there was no reaction whatsoever. And, of course, we see that every day on sitcoms, you know, men getting hit, punched, Mock hit in the testicles, 
whatever. Uh, and that's all supposed to be funny. I don't find it very funny. Well, on that note, how are the, the you know, from your observations, how do the feminist groups react to, you know, this, uh, this, op- this, this idea that females can and do commit domestic violence against males? I mean, there's a organization in Australia called One and Three, where they have mm-hmm. they released research claiming that you know one in three victims of domestic violence are men, and then they get right. labeled with fake research and oh my God, this isn't true and how dare you? I mean, what are your thoughts there? Well, certainly there's a, a great deal of uh, half the truth as good as a whole lie, as the Yiddish proverb has it out there. Uh, in abused men, I thought I'd just pick one stat, you know, <laughs> and see how widely it was spread and, and basically falsely uh, made up. Uh, that is, uh, it was a stat uh, that uh, the greatest number of injuries in the emergency room in the United States are caused uh, by domestic violence if you're a woman 18 to 54. That was the basic stat. Uh, Is that true? In other words, there are more women in emergency rooms in the United States due to partner violence, suffering injuries, than car crashes, falls in the home, that's true? Well, it took me two years. Uh, help from a congressman. And I think a phone call from a senator. Um, that I found, of course, the ultimate source was the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And they stated that in their website. It's not true. I mean, a first-year medical student should know it's not true. In other words, more injuries to women than car crashes... It just didn't seem possible, and it's not true at all. Well, it took me two years, but uh, HHS eventually took that statement down. Now, it was copied by everybody. Uh, President Clinton said it as if it was true. Uh, Democrats said it. Republicans said it. Rudolph Giuliani said it in the statement. He's a Republican. Uh, Hundreds of organizations. American College of Emergency Physicians said it <laughs> you know and and the actual fact is there are more women injured by accidental injections of poisonous plants in emergency rooms and then they are by intimate partner violence understood question for if i may with respect to false accusations i mean and i'm kind of shifting gears here do you view that a false accusation against a male is that in the same category as sexual assault or, or how do we how would you describe or handle that or, or characterize that? Well, uh, I would say, of course, yes. I believe it is a form of sexual assault in the sense that your sexual persona is being um, assailed, right? Uh, we have, uh, you know, what is the percent? One of the things I examine in women, when women sexually abuse men is what is the rate of false accusations regarding uh, sexual assault and rape and so on. Uh, truth is, we don't know. <laughs> Sorry, don't know. I mean, I looked at the research, looked at the research, looked at the research some more. The best conclusion I can draw is that we don't know. We don't know. We don't even have a handle, really, not substantially, 
on how many people are falsely incarcerated in this country. We just don't know. Now, best estimate of those falsely convicted of crimes, somewhere around 5%. Probably be the best guesstimate based on the research that we have. And uh, that's pretty sparse, to tell you the truth. However, I also got the, uh, uh, the Center for Not Wrongly Convicted, uh, but the uh, uh, Convicted and Cleared uh, Clearinghouse, and there is one, and said, hey, what is the percentage of, uh, you know, rape, falsely convicted and cleared cases out of all your database? And they have about a 1,000, okay? So it's, that's fairly limited, too. It's not a comprehensive, uh, you know, research base of all uh, falsely convicted and free. Uh, but that rate for rape uh, was around 20%. And that's fairly significant. So um, does the, the, the damage, what damage does that cause a person who's been falsely convicted? Well, gosh... There's a case of, uh, it might have been on one of your sites, uh, I think, uh, just recently, of a college boy who was falsely convicted. He was eventually cleared, um, you know, first by the university and expelled and that, that whole thing, and then cleared in criminal court and so on. Well, it devastated his life so much he committed suicide. Uh, you know, these kinds of false accusations certainly are, are abuse and have at times terrible, terrible consequences. Uh, we know the most of 60 Minutes story about the football player, you know, who uh, Jim Carroll, the Seattle Seahawks, out of the kindness of his heart, gave him a chance. <laughs> he didn't. He was past his prime. He spent years in prison on a false accusation. And it's about this woman and her mother trying to get money, really, more than anything else. He was eventually cleared and got out of prison, but his football career was over, and uh, it's pretty sad. With respect to you know workforce sexual harassment against males, you know via uh, females, what are you seeing there, mm-hmm. and, and how is that being handled? Well, <laughs> my first advice is lighten up, everybody. You know, I, I, you know I, in, in concluding, it was, I try to find some solutions, right, as opposed to just pointing out the problem, making some suggestions. And uh, the solution in the workplace is lighten up and, uh, you know, get in their face. It's sort of a two-pronged approach. In other words, I asked men, have you been sexually harassed at work? And got quite a few replies, of course, looked into those uh, kinds of things. And, of course, it does happen. I mean, you know, from the power and control aspect of a boss, let's say, right? Uh, Doing something sexually suggestive or uh, demanding sex from an employee. I mean, that's sexual harassment, right? It's coercive and it's pervasive, as the law says. Uh, On the other hand, 80% of relationships that ended marriage, happen where? Where did they start? In the workplace. So if a woman, let's say, uh, you know, 
objects, then it's harassment. If she accepts, she gets a ring. Understood. So there is that double standard. My lighten up comment is this. And there was one guy who made a sexual harassment claim against another student in the college. Well, that thing was pretty, uh, let's say, spurious. I mean, a reaction, an overreaction, really, to the incident as he described it. He felt it was sexual harassment. I'm more of the opinion that, hey, lighten up. You know? <laughs> uh, in the sense, and then there's the other sense, and I think, um, I forget which woman said this, so I can't quite remember. Uh, well, it was Camille Paglia. Yeah, she said, well, my answer is to get in their friggin' face. Tell them no. So, you know, just get it right at them. Say, don't do that anymore. Or, you know, you're going to be in big freaking trouble, boy. <laughs> you know? And so women have to stand up for themselves in, in that regard. And I agree with Camille, uh, and certainly in that respect. So get in their face and also lighten up. What about when men are the victims? Meaning, that, I mean, can you get in, into a female's face who's your superior? I mean, how, how do you handle that? Well, well, that's a bit more difficult, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, men are going to have to uh, approach things a bit more differently. In other words, yelling into the face of a female, uh, even if it was, well, I don't know, her groping him, let's say, right? Putting her hands on his pants, uh, that kind of thing. Back off, don't do that. But yelling and, you know, stuff like that, probably not the most effective response. In other words, he's likely to get in trouble for that, get overseen, and they don't know the circumstances, then uh, the reverse. So you have to take, uh, you know, uh, uh, legal action or complain to HR or whatever. Uh, if it's coercive and pervasive, then that's actually, se- that's actually sexual harassment, particularly if it's boss to employee or supervisor to employee, that kind of thing. Uh, men have to approach it uh, a bit more circumstantially, let's say, uh, and probably do the best they can to prove. You know, now that's difficult. It's more likely to interact between two people, nobody else present, right? Understood. Understood. But, but they may, they may have to do just, you know, be uh, more diligent, let's say. They should ask around, see if you've done that to somebody else. And then that strengthens their case. And, you know, they're going to have to go at it in a very methodical way, right, and put emotion aside uh, in order to prove their case uh, if that's what's occurring. Briefly, on a tangent, on a different note, uh, I note that you you work with the the group that's trying to create the White House Council on Men and Boys. What are you doing there, and what's going on there, if I may ask? Sure. Well, we, you know, the uh, Warren Farrell, and got together a group of people, 34 of us in all, mostly written books, academics. You know, I don't have a Ph.D., but most of them do. <laughs> so it's doctor this, doctor that. Uh, good people, very nonpartisan, all political stripes represented. And it's proposed to the uh, Obama administration that since they created a White House Council for Women and Girls, what about the boys and men? Uh, it was presented very high up uh, in the White House chain, let's say. Um, Then uh, Valerie Jarrett, a top aide to 
um, President Obama and still with him today as his uh, one of his top aides uh, rejected that idea and proposal. So that's where it stood. Um, obviously, there's a new administration now. Us being a group that is strictly nonpartisan, uh, we advocate for boys and men's issues to be on the you know national radar, so to speak. Uh, we have a nice Young Voices TV, and that's young men reporters that we're sponsoring to ask questions of leaders. Uh, and also, we want to promote programs that work, that help boys uh, in particular uh, do better than they are. And we know, of course, that they're not doing so well. We know about the lower graduation levels. We know about the greater incidence of dropouts. We know about the uh, greater incidence of school suspensions. Uh, they're falling behind the girls in just almost in every measure. So it's a national situation in regards of education, health, and so on. So, uh, and, you know, another interesting finding uh, is that uh, their greatest common denominator among ISIS recruits is fatherlessness. Uh, they have that. There's religion that they have in common, but the greatest common denominator is fatherlessness. So it has national security implications as well. The crisis of fatherlessness uh, affects everybody. It affects girls, and it affects boys. Kids, young people, don't say, hey, I've joined the gang today. Yay! No, they say they've joined the family. That's because they don't have a family. Not a family with a father and a mother together. Uh, these are profound issues, and we need an emphasis on programs that work, actually work, outcome measure results, uh, to help our young boys succeed. When we help our young boys, we help girls too. They don't want, you know, there's complaints and feminist blogs and so on. Where are all the good men? Well, good men aren't there because dad wasn't there. You have to raise them if you want them in the future, I understand. Yeah, so that's, the, that's what we're trying to achieve. Uh, we want to talk to members of this administration, as well as we did the previous one, uh, to create a White House Council for Boys and Men uh, in order to coordinate and find the best programs out there uh, that actually make a difference. And we know there needs to be a national effort, for example, to create more... Uh, male teachers in elementary schools. Uh, and it wouldn't be that hard if we have a campaign to promote and encourage uh, men leaving college to get into that profession. We don't have that. There's no encouragement. There's no encouragement for it. Uh, we need to look at ways to help boys succeed because if they succeed, then we all succeed, women and, and girls too. Um, we need to bring back recess. <laughs> you know, uh, we need to have more creative ideas in terms of how to approach the boundless physical energy that young boys experience in a way that um, girls uh, do not or are less inclined to do so. Um, we need to look at boys' issues really seriously and begin to address them and particularly to address and find ways to reduce fatherlessness. 
And that does include not necessarily entirely all the time biological fathers, uh, but male mentoring. Um, in one of our Young Voices TV program, they interviewed a male mentoring um, participant, a good program in the San Diego area. And, you know, this male mentor, sometimes he goes to school, he's the only male around, period. And the boys just, he doesn't have to announce I'm having a program today. They just gravitate. They just come. Understood. So there's a crying, there's a crying need for that kind of approach, and, and that's what we're trying to achieve. For our listeners, Phil Cook's Philip Cook, his website is abusedmen.com. The title of his books are right. Abused Men: The Hidden Side of Domestic Violence, and his second book, When Women Sexually Abuse Men: The Hidden Side of Rape, Stalking, Harassment, and Sexual Assault. And Mr. Cook, my dear friend Philip. Thank you for being here today. Glad to have you, and it's been very informative, and I thank you for your time. Thank you, sir. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Okay, thank you. Be well, my friend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.